I'm Chris Reback. This is Startup Conversations. What happens when we tap or swipe on our phones? According to industry estimates, only some $3.5 trillion of economic value added, about 4.5% of global GDP. Welcome to the mobile economy. And if you want to understand this massive and growing engine of global economic growth, there is perhaps no better tour guide than Enendo Ghos. Enendo is the Heinz Real Chair Professor of Business at New York University's Leonard and Stern School of Business. He's also the author of the important and engaging new book, TAP, Unlocking the Mobile Economy. But after talking with Enendo, if I were to retitle his book, I'd likely make it The Power of a Curious Mind. Since beginning his studies and research, Enendo has focused relentlessly on the mobile economy and understanding what he calls the two-way exchange that benefits both customers and business. Through research, case studies, and a distinct sense of humanness and humility, Ghost identifies nine forces that shape consumer behavior, time, crowdedness, trajectory, weather, and more. And he examines how they work individually and together. In his own words, Ghost highlights the true influence mobile wields over shoppers, the behavioral and economic motivations behind that influence, and the lucrative opportunities it represents. What does all of this mean for consumers, developers, mobile apps, publishers, businesses, and more? Ghost has been traveling the world discussing his ideas. The other day, he slowed down for 30 minutes and discussed them with me. Anindo, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, so, w- where in the world are you right now? I know you've had a uh, an extensive tour this summer. Uh, are you back in the U.S. or are you? Uh, do I catch you overseas? No, actually, incidentally, today is my um, first week after being out on the road for the last four or five weeks. Uh, uh, it's been it's been a good summer. I've been traveling. I think I covered about eight countries and ten cities. Um, lots of you know meeting old friends, catching up with new ones, and also talking about my book. Wait, yeah, uh, and both of those are good things to do. Uh, catching up with friends is obviously always nice, but uh, um, I, I must say I'm, I'm slightly more interested. What, what's been the reaction to the book? So the reaction has been uh, you know spectacular. Honestly, it's been like ex- well exceeded my expectations. Um, I think uh, you know obviously like there's a lot of happening in the mobile space and. Uh, a big part of the reason why I wrote the book is uh, you know, there didn't seem like a book out there that really captured everything that we've learned over the last decade or so, especially from combining academic research and consulting in an industry. And so I think there's a lot of enthusiasm about all these you know, real-life case studies that I've covered in the book, most of which which I've done myself. And, um, you know, as, as companies are trying to figure out, you know, if they're underinvesting or adequately investing in mobile, it seemed like the reaction has been like, this is exactly what they needed to read. So, um, yeah, it's all good. Uh, it was incidentally in China, at least for a few days, it was number one on Amazon China on the technology list and number two in business and marketing um, for a few days. So I'll take that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, o- only to the extent that, you know, China's a big market. I, it's, you know, you know, hey, it's such yeah. a, it's such a small place. I can't imagine that that's, uh, you know, a market that, you know, why, why would, why would anyone care about trying to make it big in, in uh, a small place like China? Right. 
exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so I, I want to get in, and I do want to talk about some of the case studies because, yeah, the, 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 what, what's um, fantastic and fascinating about the book, and, and in my opinion, what makes it cross over between not just a uh, you know, a, a business play, which it is, and it's, uh, very instructive and, and, you know, folks in business will, you know, that it's, it's applicable and kind of actionable. But it, it also, you know, you're talking about things and activities and actions that are, you know, very consumer, uh, we, that, yeah. that we all do. And so it, it, it crosses over. Um, but, and you did, you did firsthand research, obviously, and as you mentioned on this. So let's start first, though, set, set the stage. Um, give me the, the thesis of the book. Um, I tap on my phone, um, I, you know, whether to check something out, you know, maybe to purchase something. There are a million different things I can do on it. And a two-way exchange begins. Um, tell, tell me about that exchange and, and tell me the thesis uh, behind your book, please. Yeah. So, you know, the genesis of the title tap is basically it's a double entendre. So consumers are tapping their smartphones and, you know, you're swiping them and every action on the phone creates a trail of data. And then businesses in turn can tap into that is draw upon that that trail of data to predict our preferences uh, and essentially curate personalized services and offers for us. So that that double meaning is the origin of this book title. And, um, you know, what this what I've seen is this two way street actually ends up creating a feeling of intimacy and connection. And and the ones who do it well, the companies who do it well are the ones I refer to as the butler or the concierge, um, whereas the ones who don't do it that well, are the ones who end up stroking fears or apprehension are the ones I call stalkers. And there's a very thin line dividing, you know, who becomes a concierge and who is a stalker. And, and it's really important for businesses to figure out that, that line. And as, as you may have seen in the book, um, all these case studies are about successful examples of companies who are treading the right side of that thin line. And the getting on that line, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me as well, the amount of data that we as consumers are willing to give up. Um, does that surprise you or it's a fair trade because of everything we get in return? No, it completely blew me away when I, when I first started investigating this, you know, I, as you know, one of the, uh, central hypotheses I had going in was that people really care a lot about the privacy of the data and nothing's going to change that. But one of the behavioral contradictions I emphasize in the book based on my research and this work in the industry is that while people may claim they care about the privacy of data, increasingly they are more and more willing to give up their personal data as a currency to get an economic benefit out of it. And is that, a, is that kind of a rational actor behavior or are we acting irrationally as consumers? No, I think it's very rational, right? Because, look, there's two forces in play. The first is, you know, consumers are realizing, look, um, you know, we are not going to live in a world without ads anyway. There's always going to be a world of ads and communications and emails and coupons and offers and so on. So right now they're getting inundated by lots and lots of messages, and that's too overwhelming. It's too intrusive, too annoying. You know, something has to give. This has this can't be sustainable. So the way to make this sustainable is if they give up more of the information about their preferences to brands, then the brands now have the capability and the responsibility to reduce the frequency of the messaging and increase the relevancy of the messaging. So rather than you know showing me 10 different ads or 10 different emails, you just send me one most relevant targeted ad or email, and that's great. So people realize the only way to make this happen is for them to you know 
exchange their data with firms, number one. Um, and number two, on top of this, you know, it's not just reducing the frequency of messaging, it's also putting money back in their pockets. Okay, so who wouldn't love, you know, a great 30% discount of that $100, uh, you know, jacket that you're about to buy. And again, the way to make that happen is, you know, get participate in this barter with brands and saying, here's my data and give me an offer I can't refuse. Okay. So, you know, I, I think in, in hindsight, you know, uh, both these reasons are driving this. And I think this is very rational. And among the contradictory consumer behaviors that you outline, um, people seek spontaneity, but they're predictable, uh, which, which was just terrific phrasing. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, when you when you take a random sample of people in any place and ask them, hey, guys, what do you think? Are you very spontaneous and impulsive or are you just very, very predictable? Um, you know, the vast majority of hands will go up and say, oh, we are very spontaneous. We're very impulsive. You know, you can't really predict what you're going to do. But turns out the reality is exactly the opposite. So, you know, one of the things that I've spent a fair bit of time is working with uh, many telecom providers around the world from Asia to Europe uh, to other parts of the world. And, you know, telecom providers, by virtue of the mobile phone subscription, have a tremendous, very, very atomic granular data on our actual movements and, and, you know, where we spend our time and what we do with the phone and all of that. And we, when we looked at the, you know, the actual behavior, the, the traveling patterns of people, the commuting patterns of people within a city, even within a suburb, you know, the restaurants we frequent or the stores we try, turns out that we are far, far more predictable than you really think we are. So even though, you know, um, you know the average John Doe may want, may, may step inside a, a store to explore it, but he's far more likely to end up buying it from the place that he or she has been buying for the last few months or years. So access to location data from telecom providers is, you know, a sort of a, an unequivocal way of figuring out what our lo- what our location commuting traveling patterns are, and that lets us help figure out, uh, you know, how predictable our movements are. That's what I mean. And, and in fact, you you outline a number of forces that are shaping uh, the mobile economy: uh, context and location, which you just mentioned. Um, time and 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 there are a number of them. Uh, as you are you able to rank them or or weight them or how, how do they play among e- each other? I mean, how how do you know? If I think about an algorithm, you know, is there are, are these forces that are driving the mobile economy? Um, do some play more in a more relevant or more important way than than others? How, how do you how do you kind of think about them uh, um, in relation to each other? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I mean, you know, I don't know if there's a way for me to rank them. I mean, what I can say, though, is that, like, you know, each of these forces are obviously important on their own. But there's also a very strong synergy between the forces. So the sum of the individual parts becomes greater than the whole. Um, so what I mean by that is, for example, if you have, if you know, if you have, you as in a brand has somebody's location information, then right from the location coordinates, there's a number of other aspects you can figure out, such as how crowded the context is where the person currently is located, what the weather is like, where he or she is standing right now, um, and obviously the context and the time. And so what happens with you know such sort of atomic data is while you while I may go with the intent of you know using location as a way to understand my customer, 
But when I figure out, you know, it's location data and I figure out what the weather is like and what the crowdedness is like and what the time is, it, it gives me a lot more ideas for curating that message and make it even more personalized for the person. And that's what I mean by synergies that, you know, access to one snippet of data can lead to, you know, other insights that we may not have initially thought of, but now in hindsight, you can put them all together. Now, you've done research and, and worked with a number of companies, uh, and you cite a number of examples uh, in the book as well. Give me, what, what's your favorite example or two? Um, I know, obviously, that uh, you surely love all of your children equally, um, but, but give, give, me, give me one of the examples um, or research of who's, who's doing it well, um, and, and particularly, uh, um, you know, I mean, for example, there was the Coca-Cola example around weather, but, but, but give, give me which ones kind of jump out in, in your mind. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, it's a very hard parental question to choose amongst <laughs> nine kids. <laughs> I understand. Um, well, let me say, you know, I, I think that obviously, uh, you know, different elements of different forces appeal to me personally. Um, but I, what I can probably speak to a little more detail is what I think is in the future, what we're going to see more of. And, and that is this force called trajectory, uh, you know, which is this idea that um, while it's, you know, incredibly useful to have information about where the person is currently located and, you know, what time it is and so on. What's a lot more useful than that is figuring out where the person was in the in, in the immediate past before he arrived at a certain location. Okay? So, so I'll visualize, I'll help visualize this by giving a specific example. Like think of a shopping mall or think of a department store, right? Um, somebody standing in front of Starbucks in the mall, okay, that's somewhat useful information. You know, maybe send them an offer from Starbucks and they're going to go and buy a cup of coffee. But what if I knew that, you know, this person, just before he arrived at Starbucks, he actually first went to the Apple store, and then from there he went to the Samsung store, and then another electronic store, Radio Shack or something like that, and then he, you know, uh, he came to Starbucks. Well, now that's telling me that, you know, this person was hopping from store A to store B to store C, and all of them belong to electronic appliances or electronic products. He's probably looking for something in that category. And so if the mall has to send him just one offer, you know, not to annoy or overwhelm him, it's possible that the mall is going to get a higher bang for the buck by sending an offer from one of the three stores or at least in that product category. Um, And so this is called trajectory. And uh, and the reason I call trajectory is that this requires the department store or the mall to figure out the actual route that the person took within the mall before he arrived at a certain spot. And what's happening now is, you know, access, because of, uh, you know, access to you know, 4G or LTE, high-speed internet within large shopping malls or department stores becomes a problem. You know, it's too deep for these signals to go through. You know, people are getting access to Wi-Fi and, you know, you walk into Macy's in New York or you walk into another big department store, you'll get access to free Wi-Fi. Turns out that Wi-Fi technology is a great instrument for these institutions to really get to know about us. You know, because as soon as you're on the Wi-Fi, it lets these individual stores as well as the centralized mall get a you know a full picture of where we have been, what, how much time we're spending within a store, and so on. So that's what I call trajectory. And and the use cases for trajectory are going to very quickly expand beyond shopping into other aspects like healthcare. You know, so one of the things we are doing now is working with hospitals, instrumenting patients, doctors, and nurses with wearable devices. 
and monitoring the trajectories to figure out how do we maximize the interaction time between doctors and patients or nurses and patients and minimize the wait time for patients before they get to see a doctor and nurse. So basically what I'm saying is this trajectory data is super useful in figuring out, you know, uh, points of uh, clustering or congestion uh, within hospitals to see how we can minimize those uh, hotspots of congestion. So you just in that one answer outlined the promise and the you know and the peril. You know what what is just so exciting and you know incredible. And being able to use data and this information and things like tra- trajectory and and the insights that you gain in order to improve a patient uh, doctor relationship or patient-nurse relationship, right, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's kind of as good as you can get. And on the flip side, um, yeah, when I, you know, I know every time that I go into Starbucks and say, yes, I, I want to use their Wi-Fi or I go into, as you pointed out, a department store and I, you know, I don't have a cell reception because, you know, it's it's – so you know that there's no cell reception inside the the mall or inside the store, and so yes, I sign on to their Wi-Fi. I know I'm giving up so much personal information. I know that I'm just kind of setting myself up, kind of for a turkey shoot. And and it, it's like you, you just you, I mean you really outlined it right, both the positives of what can occur and and uh, you know you know some of the I don't I don't mean to say it's always a turkey shoot, but but that's some of the concern on the other side that I'm I'm really giving up a part of myself. Do, do you feel that tension? I guess that's what I'm getting at. There's there's yeah. just such a tension between the uh, the positives and the the room for excess, if you will. So, you know, I, I know this is going to sound contrarian, but, you know, I actually truly believe in this, that I actually feel that uh, in the shopping mall example or the Starbucks example, it's a good thing. You know, I know the, you know, most people or the average person will have some apprehension about this, but my argument is when consumers are stepping forward to give up their information about preferences or, you know, their, uh, their behavior to brands, this is what is required for this ecosystem, a sustainable ecosystem to emerge that has a lower frequency of annoying, intrusive messaging from companies and a higher relevancy. See, you see today, as of today, uh, we don't see a lot of this because right now brands and marketers and our companies know very little about us. And so they're basically shooting dark darts in the air, hoping one of them will hit bullseye. And that comes in the form of all these annoying ads and you know, coupons and emails. To reduce the frequency of the messaging from companies, they need to know more about us. And, you know, about the only way that, for that to happen is for us to participate, us as consumers to participate in that two-way street and say, okay, here's my data. I'm trusting you with my data, and then I'm expecting you to give me relevant you know, offers at a far lower frequency. Okay, So that's the ecosystem I see emerging in the next five years, but it requires the participation of both businesses and consumers. The honorable participation. I mean, kind of, it, it, it requires, I mean, I think, I mean, on the consumer side, it requires me to input proper information or, or, you know, te- yes. I, I, I hear you. I hear you. But it, it, right. uh, it'll, it, it will, the, the, you know, the, uh, trusted marketplace will require, I think, uh, honorable behavior on, on both sides or all sides. Is that, is that fair to say? No, absolutely. I think, you know, initially, and we've seen a little bit of this already in our data, you know, there's always a small fraction of people or businesses who think of this as a very adversarial game, and they'll try to game it, they'll try to manipulate it. Okay, so people will, some people will 
you know, feeding incorrect information about them, hoping that this is going to give them a better return. There may be some short-term myopic gains, and, you know, you've seen some of them, but long-term, right, the same people will figure out that feeding incorrect or inaccurate information back to brand is really not going to help them. It's going to compound that problem of excessive messaging and excessive advertising. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And that, you know, as a as an outsider, as a consumer, uh, you know, where I sit, that, that certainly makes sense. Tell me about the connection. This was really interesting to me as well, reading um, that you see the smartphone um, as the glue between offline and digital channels. So I, I know that that's in a, to a great extent um, a holy grail for many brands, being able to connect their uh, offline direct marketing or any other of their offline, you know, maybe say, you know, any of their other offline attempts um, with their digital capabilities. And so, so first of all, how do you see that working? You know, companies, I assume, are, are getting much more sophisticated at that. And, and what are you seeing there? And then two, very interesting for me to hear you characterize it, that the smartphone is the glue for that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so you know, this is, what I mean by that is this 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 behavior that many consumers put display, which is that even while they are physically inside a brick and mortar store, they are actually surfing in the smartphone to figure out the lowest prices from competitors or read reviews of the product. Okay? And quite often, even while they are physically inside the store and have found what they want to buy. They find something, they find the same thing at a lower price on the smartphone, they end up converting on the smartphone. So there goes, you know, uh, 53% of offline traffic is being lost to online retailers. You know, there's a reason why the Amazons of the world are just crushing retail, right? And what I'm saying in the book is the same mobile phone, which had become this, you know, curse for offline retailers, can now become a blessing. Because what they are able to do now, what they should be able to do, at least based on the examples that I've you know, worked on and executed is if they see the threat of the consumer leaving the store you know, without buying from them and rather buying from an online competitor, just before that happens, they can send a targeted message to the consumer that could be in the form of a discount that's strong enough that incentivizes the customer to drop that online purchase on their mobile phone and convert continue to convert offline. So, you know, imagine this, I'm in a Barnes & Noble offline store, you know, there's one near Union Square where I live, and I find the book, but the book is 20% lower on Amazon, I'm just about to buy it on Amazon, but Barnes & Noble then send me a discount for 25% and say, okay, okay, buy it from us, here's a coupon, you know, you get instant gratification, don't have to wait for a couple of days, you get it right now. So that's mobile phone becomes this interesting double-edged sword between, you know, what's happening offline and what's happening online. So that's an example of what I mean. And I, I know that we have uh, just a couple minutes left. Let me let me have you take just a little look into the future. Um, you talk about next generation technologies. Um, I'm interested as well in, in your view and how um, uh, uh, artificial intelligence, how AI, um, machine learning, um, how these things you think are going to affect the uh, relationship between consumers and businesses. I mean, obviously also, uh, you know, the Internet of Things. Give me a little look into the future and how you see the, the, the relationships uh, going as these new technologies kind of take greater hold. And, and, and I guess, importantly, what the impact on business will be. Yeah. So, you know, it's a fascinating topic, right? And, you know, we could really, 
uh, spend tons of time on this alone. But let me start by saying two things, right? So first, right now, the world we live in or the industry we live in is divided into these two schools of thought. There's Elon Musk school of thought who basically says, oh, AI is going to be all doomsday, uh, the end of mankind sort of mindset. The other is the more, the one camp I sort of subscribe to, the more like the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world who's like, look, no, it's like, let's not be so skeptical and pessimistic about AI. AI can do terrific things. AI, in fact, is already doing a lot of great stuff. I subscribe to the second camp um, where, and personally, because I've seen and done all of this work, you know, myself along with my colleagues, so I, you know, I can actually like, speak to this, that, Artificial intelligence and the use of big data and business analytics and data science is, you know, there's a lot more upside to it than downside to it. You know, with any new technology, any set of new uh, phenomena, there's always some risk. But, you know, we have seen firsthand tremendous benefits and the upside of using AI and big data uh, in society and in business. And I would really like for the average person, you know, who's thinking about the pros and the cons, try to assuage them, calm them and kind of, you know, reassure them that really is really not as bad as many skeptics would have liked us to think. Um, on the up, on the on an average, you know, there's a tremendous amount of benefits that will happen, that will accrue to us because of AI. And, you know, whether it's in the form of retailing becoming, um, you know, systematically more convenient for us or, or, or sort of, in, uh, you know, us paying lower prices, us getting better products, us being able to find products faster. I mean, this, and this is one aspect of it. But, you know, the elements of AI, I also briefly discuss this in the book. You know, crosses web crosses well outside of retail into so many other fields. I mean, healthcare is going to be you know impacted by AI. Banking and financial services is going to be affected by AI in big ways. Um, and so, my message back to you know my friends and and my readers and and your listeners would be, um, you know, let's not worry so much about the AI. Let's not you know really subscribe to the fear mongering that is going on about ai there's, there's a lot more upside that as is possible and you know i think it's also important to emphasize that there's always a downside uh, potential downside but the good news is that most companies and most you know uh, executives i talk to are at least cognizant of the potential pitfalls and the downside it's not like they're oblivious about it and so being cognizant about it, they are very careful and they are thoughtful about executing and implementing artificial intelligence in our lives. And so there's a lot more good men out there, men and women, than, you know, people who are out to get us. So I, I, that would be my sort of message back to your listeners. I, I love the uh, I love your optimism. And, and that's kind of how the book reads. I mean, it's an optimistic view of the positive potential um, that can occur in the, the use of data and that relationship between, uh, consumers and businesses. And we know, we all know that that may not, you know, doesn't always occur, not in every case. Um, but, uh, um, you know, terrific to see. Very, very quickly, just to, to, to close out. Sure. Sure. How did you get the interest in this? Where did, uh, what would, did a, did a spark go off at, at one point? And, um, uh, where did you, you know, tell me just how, how you got to here. You mean like about writing the book? I, I mean about the whole topic in, in general. So, yeah, so the last, yeah, so I've been an academic, a professor for what, about 13 years. And then you know, before that, I was pursuing my studies to become a professor. So roughly 17 years of work, pretty much all of, all of that has been about understanding, you know, consumer behavior on the Internet. 
And I was fascinated, you know, in, in, two, in the year 2000, when I first started doing my PhD, I was fascinated with the things happening on the internet. At that time, it was really just Amazon doing some terrific things. Um, but even that one company fascinated me. I ended up writing a PhD thesis, trying to understand how Amazon's marketplaces are changing consumer behavior. So that was a journey. And then, you know, I started looking more into companies like search engines, like Google and Bing and Yahoo, trying to figure out, you know, what people are doing on search engines, you know, why ads even matter on search engines and so on. And as the internet then started evolving more into, uh, you know, the mobile internet as smartphones and tablets came into play, then it just triggered my curiosity in understanding what we do with our phones and what we do on our uh, tablets. So, and that's basically been, uh, you know, a brief synopsis of my interest and journey in this space. And with respect to the book, uh, I think a lot of that was essentially triggered by uh, just strong sort of an encouragement and support from friends and family who kept saying, look, you know, you guys have done a lot of cool work uh, and you've published them in all these journals, but, you know, the average person is not really going to read a journal. So maybe it's time for you to put it together in a book that, you know, the average person will read. And and I thought, okay, you know, I should uh, basically just try to carve out uh, plenty of time to put it all together. And that's really how this book came into play. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful. And I'm, I'm certainly glad that you did. And uh, I guess in listening to that, um, if, you know, the, the book on you might be um, The Power of a Curious Mind, <laughs> because it's really, uh, that's really fascinating how just by being, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. Um, Thank you uh, very much, Anando. I really, uh, I really appreciate your time and really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed uh, talking to you, too.